Welcome to Brains, a podcast exploring the inner workings of our brains and how film and television portray them. Hosted by me, writer-director Heather Taylor. And by me, film and television editor Sarah Taylor. Before we begin, we want to acknowledge that the lands from which we recorded this podcast are part of territories that have long served as a gathering place for diverse Indigenous peoples. And we are thankful, as guests on this land, to be able to live, work, and gather here. On today's episode, we'll be talking about the importance of language, community, and the impact representation, or the lack thereof, can have on you. We'll also discuss the effect of losing and or gaining a language that connects you to your community and who you are. We have the pleasure of speaking with Guascotamorgate Paulette Moore, an independent filmmaker, podcaster, artist, and educator who is a Mohawk citizen and an enrolled member of Six Nations of the Grand River Territory. She's a founding member of the Anti's Dandelion, a relationship-centered media collective. The organization seeks to revitalize community through stories of land, language, and relationship. A quick reminder to our listeners that this interview should not be taken as medical advice, and it is for informational purposes only. Because everyone's brain is different, please consult your healthcare professional if you have any questions. In this episode, we do talk about residential schools and genocide, so please be warned. Hello and welcome to Brains. I'm so happy that you could be here with us today. I'm thrilled to be here. Wagatsununi. I'm so happy. And what guanawaradu, say what Greetings, love, and respect to everyone. Gasto Seraguate Young Yats. My name is Gasto Seraguate, and I'm a Ganyunge Haga Mohawk person who is a filmmaker and a podcaster and a content creator and just all around storyteller and language speaker and teacher based at Six Nations of the Grand River, which is about an hour and a half southwest of Toronto, the biggest reserve on the, in Canada. Yeah, well, thank you for inviting me. I'm so excited to meet both of you. Yes, thank you. And where are you currently located as we do this interview? Right now, I, I spend some time in the Southwest. So I right now am in an Adobe house in Isleta Pueblo. So my partner lives down here. So I'm based at Six Nations. So it's a very kind of dynamic relationship that we have. (laughs) And um, so this was the house that his father built. It's uh, they call it seven lucky minutes south of Albuquerque. (laughs) Because there's a casino here. It's a casino community. Oh, that's funny. um, Yeah. So. You know, it's like I'm from the very northeast and my partner is from the very southwest and his people emerged from the land and my people came down from the stars, you know, so it's this very Aww. interesting mix of um, land, different lands and like what's my relationship to the land when I'm here, right? And uh, he is very land focused, even when we go for walks, he looks at the land when we're walking and I'm always looking at the birds. It's a really kind of beautiful connection. And I made a movie a couple of years ago called The Eagle and the Condor, which is was about the North and the South kind of swirling around each other and creating this, this mix in our modern day, right? So I feel like it's living out that as an original instruction. <laughs> oh, I love this. Oh, yeah. beautiful. Before you moved into independent filmmaking, what were some of the experiences that you had that led you back to your community to focus on telling stories from a Mohawk perspective? Yeah. So I didn't grow up on my reserve. I grew up in Niagara Falls, New York, on the New York side. 
My grandfather, Albert Jacket Hill, is from Six Nations, and he was a marvelous farmer. The Mohawks are known for being farmers and loved our language so much, took me back to the res, spoke Mohawk to me, and I only learned the words sego, which means hello, and the words raganuha'a, um, which means uh, uncle. Um, so I, when I was in my 40s, I realized the language was kind of pinging me, like kind of like, hey, you know, and I have always considered myself not good at language, um, but now I'm a fluent Mohawk language speaker. So I guess it's about kind of motivation and, you know, that love and that kind of vibration that comes up from the land, which is what we say about our languages. They emerge from the land. But at that time that that language started pinging me, I was working in Washington, D.C. as an independent director, producer, and writer. And I worked with National Geographic, Discovery Channel. I probably made more than about 30 hours of programming. It was just like dovetailing one into another, into another, into another. And it was a really dynamic time in Washington as well. And so it was exciting. There was just so much work. The The cable networks were starting up. I worked a lot with Discovery Channel, uh, some with History Channel, and then Geographic came in in the early 2000s. They actually came to the cable side later. It was just so much fun to be doing that. All of those films were funded, and I was director, producer, writer for hire. So very exciting. It's, I just felt like, oh, it's what I always wanted to do, you know, to be a storyteller and to be in television. And then I really did start noticing the content of what I was making and what our audience was going to be. And it was always stated right up front, white males between the ages of 18 and 35. It was more of a thing that was affecting my body first of like, there's something, you know, when there's something wrong, but you don't yes. want to articulate it. Yes. Really? Yeah. yeah. Like I didn't like, even want to ignore that. <laughs> yeah. Ignore that because yeah. I'm paying my mortgage and I'm having a blast. Yeah. You know, yeah. it's just like, you know, and I'm living in Washington and all my friends are directors and we're having so much fun. And then really worked on a few films that were highly, highly disrespectful. I felt to indigenous cultures. One was in the Amazon in Brazil. And really, you know, you're always focused on the white savior that swoops in, right? That's the real overarching narrative that we see when mainstream media covers native ways Mm -hmm. of being, Mm -hmm. right? They're looking for the feathers. They're looking for the, oh, the poverty, Mm-hmm. And looking for the poor and um, looking for the drunk or looking or then the other side of that, which is looking for that spirituality, yes. the shaman, you know, so we end up being cartoons. Right. Mm-hmm. And I was seeing that more and more with that show in particular, the one that was in the Amazon and really understanding that on that show, that was a geographic show. I was not allowed to pick any narrator for that show. I'm the director, right? Hmm. Any narrator that wasn't a British male. Oh, my. And I'm like, well, what is that about? You know, and I think I think I knew, you know, I was really 
seeing so clearly it wasn't representation. And here I'm an Indigenous person creating this show that is creating just a continuation of, it's a genocide, you know, it's a genocide of our identity, but it's also a genocide of our people that is ongoing. So I started really reacting. Like I said, it was my body first that reacted and then my intellect was following. Then another story that was going to be set in South Africa, and there was this host that was on this show, and he had the the Indiana Jones vest and the Indiana Jones hat and the three days growth of beard, and he wanted his latte before 9 a.m., blah, 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 you know, like, and I'm like, what are we doing here? And after I submitted the first script for that film, um, the executive producer said, look, stop, don't focus so much on the, on the Lemba. It's a show called The Lemba. Don't focus so much on this tribe. <laughs> oh, geez. <laughs> um, this show is about the host, right? Uh. This show is about Josh. And I was like, what? You know, and that was a real smack point mm. uh, where I was just like, I cannot do this anymore. And thank you very much, executive producer, for saying that mm-hmm. because he was... He just brought it out into the open and um, he wasn't, you know, beating around the bush because a lot of the people that work in, you know, television are pretty progressive and they think they know what it's like to, you know, relate to indigenous people. But it just really speaks to the fact that this is just we're just backdrop for this you know, white person's adventures. Mm. And there was no way that I could still justify that anymore. So it was heartbreaking for me because, again, it's what I always wanted. And you reach a certain status and then I could be working with the people that I wanted to work with and we're away and we're all a community there in Washington, D.C. And there's still some of my best friends that are in production. They're amazing. Like, they're amazing storytellers. Everybody's really curious and full of energy, you know, like it's a, it's a dynamic community, but I really had to let that go. And then when you release that, it's like, well, what happens now? What's next? I don't know what it looks like. Cause that's all I ever did. I invested my time, my, my life in that went into academia for about a decade. And in that space, I was able to have a salary. I worked with some beautiful programs at Eastern Mennonite university. And then uh, at Northland College in Ashland, Wisconsin, and they had beautiful cameras, and then I could co-produce movies with my students. Oh, cool. And then, yeah, it was really cool. And then I could articulate, oh, like I was making choices hmm. all this whole time, and it was such a beautiful opportunity for me to articulate, like that's why I put the camera there, mm. you know. And it was helpful for the students, and um, so that was the big push for me to shift my filmmaking. And then also at that same time, my Mohawk language was pulling me, Six Nations was pulling me. My family had lost our our status through the Indian Act. Mm, yeah. And so we regained our status. I didn't know that we could regain our status. And so we did that. I could have gone back to my community anyway, but that opened the door for me to feel like I had permission. And I had started doing language at our Mohawk farm called Ganajoharege, which is in our traditional homelands in central New York, near Albany. Mm -hmm. So 
we got displaced to Canada during the Revolutionary War, right? Our original homelands and the Mohawk Valley near Albany, that's where our towns were. And so a group from Akwazasne took over a farm uh, of 500 acres. And that has been just such a gorgeous relational language space. So I had started kind of visiting that farm, getting a little bit of language. And then I moved back to Six Nations about 10 years ago and uh, have been working in my community ever since. So oh, it was a good path for me. What a journey. That is such a journey. Oh, thank you. It's really touching when you have those moments of revelation where you're like, I, I want to make a difference in what I'm making, and this is not where I'm going to make a difference. That's right. Making that conscious choice, because I know a lot of people, you have fear, right? You have fear that if I leave this, but then you need to bring good in the world and you need to tell this, the stories and the way that are the most respectful and it feels very brave mm-hmm. and I wish more people <laughs> had that. Oh, thank you, Heather. When you go and you throw the name National Geographic around, people are like, woo, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, Discovery, National Geographic. And it's like, oh, I'm making this independent film about water protectors. And people are like, oh, what, what? Yeah. <laughs> Which is <laughs> like, a shame, but yeah. It's like the status, the economic part, all of that has been a challenge, but I swear there's never been a moment that I felt like I needed to turn back, um, that it was a mistake ever. So I'm Mm -hmm. grateful for that because I feel like, again, this term original instructions, I feel like I'm being led. And now that's a skill that I've been building as well. That's what I'm so grateful for in Indian country, that we have a work for that intuition feeling Um, And sorting out when it's my ego that's talking or Mm. whether it's the ancestors that talk that's talking because I spent so much time in that world. Yeah, for sure. Yes. And so um, that's been a big part of the journey as well. I used to work for The Economist. And so, yeah. Same thing, right? (laughs) Guess what? Look, you just your eyes light up like The Economist. That's right. It's fancy. I know. I'm doing that thing. Yeah. Someone walks up to you and your name badge says The Economist. People will talk Mm. to you. When That's your name right. badge says like independent, independent filmmaker, yeah. <laughs> independent <laughs> writer, no one's stopping to talk to me. <laughs> They're like looking over there. <laughs> yeah. yeah, there's a humility. Yeah, yeah, and there's and I I think it's like the ego thing. Like, how do you really look and analyze what? Why am I making these choices? And yeah. I, I love what you said. Where like, is it my ego or is it my the ancestors speaking? And yeah. I think being able to like actually be reflective of that. Mm-hmm. I think. Not everyone does or has the ability yet, or they don't analyze it to that capacity. Yeah. So that's right. And and that's available to everyone. That's, you know, in indigenous communities, we actually have that articulation. And that's what we're trying to do, like with the Auntie's Dandelion with my organization, is make people aware. It's just that you guys are focused on language, right? And it's that articulation of what's going on. And then it becomes like a speculative art. You're living into a future from a very different perspective. You're using different words. You're using different motivations. And that makes all the difference. And everybody has ancestors that are trying to talk to them. Mm. You know, we all come from indigenous places. We all do. We're all at some point we're connected to the land Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and the land, when you let it speak to you, when you let it teach you 
and the natural world, like we have the Ohandu Gariwadekwa, which is our Thanksgiving address. And that Thanksgiving address is giving gratitude to the natural world, not mm. for the natural world. Yes. So we're that develops a relationship with the natural world. And it's like, oh, what's my spirit animal? You know, it's like not yeah, no. what that is. It It is putting yourself, um, making yourself responsible and making yourself open and noticing. So when we say that, we start with the people, the water, the animals, Mother Earth, and we make our way up over the course of the Ohanda Garewadekwa. And mm-hmm. after everything that we claim, like, um, you know, I give greetings, love and respect to the bugs. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. And, and then you're like, wait a minute, where's the bees? It's also kind of a scientific mm-hmm. accounting. Yes. Right? It yes. makes us pay attention to the actual thing that allow us to survive. Yeah. And so those are the messages that we want to bring to people and when people interact again with indigenous people they just want it like they treat everything else like a pill mm-hmm. like what is my dream? you know what what's my spirit name and it's like it it's actually indigenous ways of being is some of the most practical on the ground ways of being in the world because we are so tied to the land it literally gives us food yeah <laughs> yeah it literally is our mother like i'm looking at things that look like weeds and i know they're medicine sitting right outside my window here. oh my gosh. yeah you know, and familiarizing ourselves with that makes us so strong yeah and it's so enlivening you yeah because you can't do it just yourself like the people that are coming in and out of the driveway here are farmers from this community and we hang with them all the time. They're y- these young, they call themselves the Pueblo Resurgence. And they are resurging. You know, they are surging mm. in this community. And they've made those tough decisions. Yeah. To their, you know, they've gotten the degrees, but they're like, that's not the life. They're in this community, responsible. Mm. They take care of, you know, they take care of us. They check in with us. They bring food to the elders in the community. And it's just a very different mindset and it's a struggle all the way along the way, but it's just creates a meaningful life. Yeah. Yeah. Because everything truly is connected. Earlier you mentioned Auntie's Dandelion. Yes. Can you tell us a little bit more about that and why you started it? Well, it kind of picks up that story where I left off of, you know, moving back to the community and then going into Mohawk language immersion at a school called Ongwa which means our original language group, right? Mm-hmm. And they are do they just have done tremendous work revitalizing our our language because we have less than 2000 speakers both first language and second language speakers, which means native and then people that have learned like me. You know, like I learned in my 50s, right? So it's considered critically endangered across all of our territories, less than 2,000 people, right? So I started into Mohawk language, and it's considered one of the hardest languages in the world, and it's polysynthetic, which means each little part of a word carries a way to modify it. Oh, wow. And for me... Yeah. And for me, that's all about the relationships that we take really seriously. You always need to know what is happening to who, 
you know, so you can't say abstract things. You can't say like, she was hit, right? You have to say someone hit her, right? You have to like, and uh, there were two people involved. And so we have pronouns for two men, two women, um, three or more, me to you, me to two people, right? We have like 300 pronouns. (laughs) Amazing. (laughs) In our language. Yeah, it's amazing. To get into language school, we have to know 40 pronouns. And then there are some flourishes. Like, I don't, I don't know if it's exactly 300, but it's like so many. And so our language is very involved and very, and you have, you cannot learn the language on like Rosetta Stone. You have to be in community. You have to be in relationship with people. And it's not all beautiful. It's so, it's really, really difficult and discouraging, you know? And then three years later, I did graduate at an intermediate high level last spring, which is one of the things I'm just most proud of, Mm. you know? And it really has brought so much to me. And then in the context of creating the Auntie's Dandelion, when I was learning my language, there was another, a very good friend of mine who um, is also from Six Nations. We began envisioning bringing this, these messages of our original instructions to other people. And we were both articulating things in very similar ways. You know, she had a very similar journey of being a nurse for a long time and then, you know, changing up her life. She then became a medical doctor and was in that Western way. And now she is going into herbal medicine and going back to our land and back Mm. to our people um, so we just felt like we had a lot to say. We love the fact that in our communities, we're matriarchal, right? Mm. So we, you're not aging out uh, yes. <laughs> as you become older. <laughs> when you become older, you become more expansive uh. and you take on this role of the auntie. And I just feel so grateful that I'm not stuck in that place where a lot of people that are no are trying to be stay in in the thirties. Yeah, right? totally. And, yeah. and not living into that full expanse of what happens when you step into that wisdom, yeah. into that humor and into that responsibility of correction within the community. Like the aunties uh, have that responsibility. Like they see who has talent or skill, even if they don't recognize it. So it's my mm. responsibility to bring that along. And then it's my responsibility to correct people if I see, and you carry the authority of the land and you carry the, that authority of your age, mm-hmm. you know? And so what a, what a gift to have at, at this age, I'm approaching 60, right? And people become so despairing, especially women yes. at this age. And it's like, wow, I just feel so grateful that my teachings are about women expanding and having more authority and having more influence within our communities. So we wanted to do this podcast. We started with the story of Sky Woman because we felt like that was, we read that story together with about three or four other friends from Six Nations. My other Auntie Garana Unwe organized that and we all came together and read that story out loud. Like we all knew the story of Sky Woman, but when we read it out loud, 
And the story is that she was in Sky World. She was pregnant. She was different from other people. So people kind of feared her. And she was about kind of autonomy and strength and originality, right? And um, she sent her husband as a, you know, a pregnant woman, she sent her husband to go get a certain root from a tree. And he got afraid because that tree was kind of an off, it, it almost sounds like, um, you know, like a biblical story of like, don't touch mm. the fruit, you know, oh, like, right. don't touch them. <laughs> so he didn't want to gather those roots. So she's like, all right, I'll go do it myself, right? And she went to gather the roots and noticed that there was a hole under the root of the trees. And she looked down and some stories say Sky Woman was pushed. Mm. Other stories say she just fell through the sky. You know, so mm. that first episode is called Sky Woman was pushed. <laughs> <laughs> and when she fell through the sky, she grabbed, you know, corn beans and squash and, and strawberries. She grabbed our important plants as she fell to earth. Mm. She was rescued by geese. The earth at that point was covered with water. And those geese saw her and they're like, she's not going to make it. So they rose up to, to catch her landed and a big, huge turtle, which is turtle Island, which is what mm -hmm. we're all on right now, rose up. She was set down on the turtle and then other animals uh, dove down to the bottom of the water to get the earth. So she could sow, sow those seeds and oh. she danced those seeds. Right. So when we read that, we were like, what? You know, again, we had heard that story for many years, but when we spoke it mm -hmm. to each other and mm. took turns reading it, we were just getting so many beautiful teachings. And it, and the lesson was to us that you will fall through the sky, mm -hmm. right? And, and we know how to deal with that. And I think from a Western perspective, it's often about like, don't fall through the sky yes. no matter what you do. Yeah. That story for us was you're you're almost meant to fall through the sky. So how do you deal with that part? Like, don't waste your time. You know, don't be reckless. But we know what to do when you fall through the sky. That's what ceremony is for. When you do the condolence ceremony, it was designed so that you can open your ears, you know, you wipe your ears and you wipe the tears away. And then so that your mouth can speak the word, speak new words and speak new language. Right. And so it's highly practical and just so beautiful. So those are the things that we wanted to share with the world. And then one second after we had our first podcast, the world shut down. <laughs> Oh, yes. <laughs> so they we, didn't want we to fall through the sky. They closed, they closed the hole. <laughs> right, um, exactly. You've talked a lot about how enriching your life is and, and, and full your life is now that you've come back to your language. Yes. What was the impact of not learning your family language for the first part of your life? I think, well, and also not being connected to our community. Mm -hmm. So not yeah. knowing our language and being someone who felt like almost like an orphan in some ways. I mean, I have a beautiful family, but out there in the world, not really guided mm -hmm. by any particular way of being. Um, our language is so full of meaning and you don't say things really that you don't that you don't take responsibility for yeah. 
Mm. And, you know, there's there's one word, one phrase that's called that goes, Gazat Stansara Gowasa Oyera, right? And in that phrase, that means the great intelligent energy mm. that is continually expanding. And I've been told by one of our elders that in that understanding of Gazat Stansara Goa Sa'oyera, there's a natural part. Sa'oyera is natural. So it's this expanding, intelligent, natural energy. And then what the elder added to that is that it's so delighted when we add just our small piece to that. Mm. Uh, it's so delighted when we basically recognize what our true instructions are, mm -hmm. like our true self is. And that doesn't mean that we're superheroes. It might mean you make amazing corn mush yeah. mm -hmm. and show up at community. It might be mean that you're the person that can have the capacity to go to Standing Rock or stand and, you know, yeah. fight for the water. It might be that you're the person that has the beautiful singing voice. Mm -hmm. That's what, what you were sent here to do. And it, it's almost like the smaller and more rooted, the better. That's the feeling that I got from the elder. We just bring that thing that we do mm. and place it into the greater whole. So it mm. places you in this community where it's not uh, like paradise for sure. I mean, these are people, we're all humans yeah. and everybody's <laughs> got their stuff, right? Everybody's carrying yeah. their darkness as well as their light. And that's important as well. Mm -hmm. We have words for that, mm. you know, and that part is acknowledged and not thrown out the door. So what, what I didn't have before I went back to my community and learned my language was this appreciation of the darkness. In Washington, I was so up close and personal to all that you know, machinations that were going on. Yes. And the you know, and it <laughs> ends up being like football teams, right? So it becomes very small. And so the world becomes way more expanded. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. it is all about the gifts that we bring to mm -hmm. each other and all about that relationality. And, and it's not an easy adjustment to be someone who is like, in my whole early life, I'm like, I'm the one that has to do it. I'm an individual. I'll carry blah, 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 blah. And when you end up back in, in a community, you have to really understand what that means. Yeah. You know, and as you guys know, like in production, it's all about the big thing. And we got this big thing and we did this big thing. And then we <laughs> met this person and this other big thing. And, you know, and that's super yeah. fun. I think the language that is valued, whether it's actually Ganyangeha, whether it's one of our original languages or even speaking to each other in English, uh, the important things are, are different. The important things are the land. Nobody shows up as the, the smartest farmer in the room. Right. You know, yeah. like everyone's sharing and carrying something. That, that's what I feel like community should be. Like you're describing what yeah. we're all here to contribute to make the world our lives better and we need each other and we need yeah we can't just be and i think for sure the west right now when i was like a young mom we didn't ask for help we just oh we just gotta take care of it we don't need no no That's we just right. gotta do it ourselves right i don't want that for the future of my family and my kid no. and yeah so i know and i feel like you know this whole thing about residential schools and taking people from their families mm -hmm. and all of how that created the genocide in our communities mm-hmm 
even just the ripping away, much less the killing and the, the abuse that happened, I feel like our culture is at that point where they're taking families away from each other all across the board. It's not just the indigenous. It's almost like you the more that you're away from your family and like Silicon Valley sets up ping pong tables oh. and you can have a meal. Oh, yeah. All the things. Your doctor can you know? be in the office with you. You get a massage at work. Like you never need to go home. <laughs> no, when I worked at Ogilvy, that's what they did. I worked at Ogilvy. That's you what they did. Ogilvy and the Economist. <laughs> yes. <laughs> 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 Except for she didn't get to see her family or have a life because that was no, like, No, because know? it was 14-hour days. Yeah. And then what they do is the office is really far on the west side of Manhattan. There's nothing near it. So you have your doctor, your gym. You have a hairdresser. You have – so I can get my shots. I go to a doctor's appointment. You can have a psychologist there if you're having problems with work. You, you can go talk to a therapist. Um you, they had programs for healthy eating and for taking care of your body and even had someone come and do your do people's nails. Oh, geez. Oh, my God. They would take one of the conference rooms and you could book a 15-minute slot so you could go get your nails done so you never left the office. Oh, my God. Like, think about that. It's wild. That's just, yeah, what? And that's the gold standard. Yeah, and that would be like, you would want to get a job there because look at all these perks I have. Look at all this like, yeah. extra stuff I get without really knowing how much that's going to be a negative effect on your life, right? Yeah. That's right. And that's just extraction of your energy mm-hmm. and your time mm-hmm. and your youth and your vitality and <laughs> totally. all yes. of that yeah. stuff. Makes yeah. you very tired. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no, but I think and disconnected as well, yeah. like you said. Mm-hmm. You're away from your family. Like we need each other. We want to be with each other. We want to have our babies. Like, yeah. You know? Yeah. And I think like what you were saying too, when we're talking about indigenous schools and, and, and families and communities being torn apart, I feel like there was a lot of also loss of language because people were, you know, basically it's like, you're going to assimilate into this culture Mm -hmm. and you're going to remove yourself from your community and your language. Oh yeah. How has this loss of language impacted your communities? And then how are you, what opportunities are there to maybe preserve and grow this language and grow other languages? Yeah, well, I mean, if you're in Indian country, there, you know someone who is in the residential schools. Mm-hmm. So that's mm-hmm. how pervasive it's oh, like. Totally, yeah. Everybody yeah. knows somebody, my own family, other people's family. You know, I, I know survivors and they have so much trauma around this. Like I know one survivor who just keeps, she's, probably in her mid eighties right now. And she has been working for the last, I don't know, two decades or more to reclaim her language. Mm. And she was meant to be so ashamed of being an Ungwehongwe person. And that's at such an early age. And she has tried so hard, but when you have that trauma, it's really hard to learn. Yeah, But she keeps going back. She keeps signing up for classes. Mm. You know, she didn't even really know what a noun and a verb was, you know. And so it's just like these teaching methods that took so much from her, took her from her family, took her language, took her teachings away. So and she's very, you know, there's so many amazing, courageous uh, survivors that are out there and influencing us 
but when you grow up in that environment away from touch and away yeah. from teaching, then it's really hard to hand love over yeah. to your own family. Yeah. Mm. You know? And and so that exists within our community, that brutality exists, even though they are back in the community now, there's just no denying the effect that has on your ability to relate and to learn your language again, to go back. But I got to tell you, this lady, I just love her. And she's just always talking, you know, and my um, friend who teaches her, he's, he just loves her so much too. And he's just like, she just like, he's, he's taught so many of the courses that she keeps going back (laughs) and taking and he's like, every time she does learn just a tiny bit more, you know, and he sees, and he's so patient with her with the progress that she makes. And so there is that grief in our communities. There is that loss. There is that just abandonment and sadness because I'm part of the language group, right? Mm-hmm. The group that's vitalizing. I feel I am surrounded by other people who are a lot like me that are have lives that are full of meaning mm-hmm. where and and it's the language and knowing that there are less than 2000 Mohawk speakers. So we're one of those. And there's like Ongoanagunjokwa, the school that I went to has created they I think they've estimated almost um, 150 speakers over 20 years. And that doesn't sound like a lot, but you're having to do all this very careful rebuilding of foundation Mm -hmm. in this very difficult language with all of these pronouns, right? Um, So what exists in our communities now are just a real excitement. I mean, our writing for Ganyangeha, for Mohawk, was only standardized in 1993. So, you know all of the the ways that we write now with the diacritics and there were groups of people. And this is what I'd love to make a documentary about this at some point is, um, and there are rec- audio recordings of those meetings that went on and how people came together to save our language. Mm. And then young people that are working so hard, people, you know, people who are my age um, and I'm on the phone at least twice a week with friends doing Zoom calls and just speaking Ganyangeha. Mm. And we just keep trying and we show up. There's these Zoom calls where elders can speak and it's so intimidating because <laughs> they speak so differently and they, they get really annoyed with us, you know, because, <laughs> because I can and because the way that we speak Ganyangeha is very different yeah. from the way they speak, yeah. you know, because we learned from this structural thing and it's, you know, there's no way that English isn't um, influencing the way that we're speaking and they just get so cranky and they're like, huh? Like, what? <laughs> now, hold on. What? I did a show <laughs> in Blackfoot. And so we had a Blackfoot translator who's an elder. And he was listening to the young, like young 20-some-year-olds speaking Blackfoot. He's like, oh, they got to come hang yeah. out with me. <laughs> He's always shaking <laughs> his know, head. <laughs> but Yeah. And so that that learning journey is forever. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I, there, and there's a lot of shame, too. So this is the effect. Uh, there's a lot of shame around trying to learn your language. There shouldn't be. Yeah. But there is. Like, I experienced that shame. And I couldn't, I almost couldn't recognize myself because I feel like I don't operate from that way of being. But mm. that's so deep within us. Like, you start to speak and 
people are like, what? you know, what are you talking about? But you just have to, it really develops you. It makes you formidable, yeah. you know, <laughs> to get through that. And I was just writing emails uh, yesterday to some friends who are much higher speakers, much higher level speakers than I am. And I know I was making mistakes in those emails, but I'm like, I'm just gonna keep speaking more, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. And I, I'll say like, I know all of my words, yeah, you know, yeah, take that the kairi degon, they wanna like they're they're not correct, all of the words. but I'm trying. That means I'm like I'm trying really really hard, you know. So uh, it, it change, yeah, it really changes your character. But I'm I'm really encouraged, and the fact that the language is changing to me just means that it's living. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not like Latin, right? Where yeah. we're we're speaking it, yeah. and there's dialects. Yeah, you know, there's yes. different dialects in our communities. Yeah, it's like English. Every year they add new words to the dictionary. That's right. Like it's an evolving, growing language. Yes. To me, it means we're still yes. here. We're yes. Still yes. Are there any films and television shows that you think deal with language and identity, especially, you know, Mohawk identity and language, perhaps in an accurate way? Or what would you like to see represented more? You told us about the stories, unfortunately, where it was very like white savior-esque, but what yeah. stories are we missing? I really feel like there's just such, I mean, <laughs> my partner from here <laughs> says, is every Haudenosaunee person a filmmaker? (laughs) (laughs) And I was like, you know what? Yeah, (laughs) kind of. We have so many storytellers in our community and I Mm -hmm. just love, like we have this micro short film festival. Our friend Terry Jones is a beautiful experimental filmmaker. Uh, Zoe Hopkins is, man, she's just knocking it out of the ballpark. She's made two films like in the last four years. One is called Kayak to Klemtu and another is uh, Run, Woman, Run. Yes. And that deals. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Have you guys seen that? I, I've heard about her, and I ha- but I haven't seen it yet. And yeah. I, it's, it's on my list. Yes. And it's her family that started the language school. Oh, cool. At Six oh, okay. It's amazing. her father, who was uh, like amazing journalist, he went back to the res at the like almost the same age I went back, like in his fifties, and he didn't speak Mohawk, and he just is indomitable. Like he just is so hard headed, um, and made it his business to learn the language and then to create a way uh, for called the root method. He with uh, another elder called um, Gana Dewakun. They developed this root method so that we actually have a way other than just speaking to each other to, mm, to learn the language. Mm. So Zoe worked at Ongwawana, went through Ongwawana Gunjokwa. I think she learned our language in her 30s. She also has ties to the Western tribes. So mm. she, you know, the, the um, like canoe families out in the West. Um, mm-hmm. So it's really cool. She made one film, The Kayak to Klemtu, is more about her Western side, her canoe family side. And then Run, Woman, Run has a lot of language elements in it and features our whole community. Oh, like, oh, we're all okay. in it. I need to, yeah, I I need to it. watch it this weekend. <laughs> yeah. And so that's, that's the um, cool part, too, is seeing our community, hearing our language. There's whole parts of that film that are Mohawk language. You know, and, you know, a good friend of mine, he only speaks Mohawk in the film. You know, the elder that I was talking about earlier, he's in the film and he's only speaking Mohawk. And this young woman is trying to go back, 
you know, go back to language school and she's just has so many distractions, which is mm-hmm. always the case as well. We have so many things that we're dealing with. Um, so that's so exciting. And then, you know, these other filmmakers that, and it's beautiful that on the Canadian side, there is support for, for language. So we're lucky that we have these places that we can go to get funding. I'm working on a film right now, um, two films actually. One is called The Clay She Is Made Of, and it's about that Sky Woman story. Mm-hmm. And that one, the whole beginning, there's about seven minutes that's Mohawk, mm. that's in only Mohawk. And, that, and there's animation in that, but it's also tied to the story of my mother and her humor and resilience and just beauty, much like... Uh, sky woman and how she fell through the sky right um and how she was pushed yeah Mm. and then the other movie that we just got funding for yay uh, is called bud well that's the working title i think that will be i love the title Um, but it's about uh it's based on three or four different people um but the main character called bud and is uh, Six Nations, Mohawk, carpenter and philosopher. And he's tragically lost members of his family. And he meets this young family and he's building a house, a home for them mm-hmm. on the reserve. And they're coming back to the reserve mm. after not growing up there. So there's right. elements of my own story mm. there as well. But they have their young children with them. And he's just such a character and he loves our language so much. And he's also struggled to learn Mohawk. And there's this way of learning a Mohawk word where you start with the last syllable. It's because it's so hard to break down our sounds. Our ears are not attuned to it. So you start with Mm -hmm. the last syllable, second to last syllable, last syllable, and then go backwards and learn the word kind of backwards. It's almost like that drawing thing where you turn the the picture down and draw it. That's, that's the way I think about it. So he does that with this young family that comes back and they they just have this love for each other. And he's such a quirky elder and he speaks in this very relational way. And it looks like he's just like really looking at them and paying. So they start saying very emotive things. Mm. And then he's like off doing something else. <laughs> Right? Like, <laughs> I love it. <laughs> so it, it gets them in that space where mm-hmm. they're starting to share, and then he's off doing, you know, another thing. <laughs> and he's actually deaf, and so they can't tell if he's just can't hear them, you know. Um, and he keeps calling the dog she when it's a he, you know, and um, and they keep correcting him. But in Mohawk, he addresses the dog in the correct way, oh, okay. right? Mm-hmm. So. So it's just like he's it's these characters that are in our communities that are just so beautiful. And so there's Mohawk in that film. Um, there's just a little bit of Mohawk in the Veronica film. But I just feel like any time we bring that meaning into that story and we're in a, in a time right now where there's reservation dogs mm-hmm. and Rutherford Falls and, you know, there's all these indigenous stories that are coming out. And there was an article in the New York times where they interviewed the showrunners from Rutherford mm-hmm. Falls and reservation dogs. And they said, you know, we have thousands and thousands and thousands of years worth of stories. Yes. And the West 
and especially in the U.S., have like 200 years, you know, of stories, like 200 years. And our stories are so much more, you know, there's so much layer and so much humor and the tricksters. Mm -hmm. And we have so many different characters that that can express so many more parts of who we are as human beings. We're not restricted by the corral, you know, of characters that were allowed to tell in, in the overculture, yeah. right. Yeah. In mm-hmm. the Marvel. I mean, but even Marvel's doing yeah. a bang up job with Miss Marvel. And Echo, you know, Echo's being filmed right now. And that's like, yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, yep. Exactly. Great. Yeah. Yeah. So I feel so encouraged that, you know, anytime that I can slip Mohawk into the podcast, like at the beginning of the podcast, and not have to always explain ourselves either. Like I don't have to translate every time that people can just be carried along because again, if they're listening, they'll hear that vibration that emanates from the earth. They'll be able to feel it, you know? In their and heart. I feel that you describing it like that, I think is what I love about listening to the Auntie's Dandelion. Like, Oh, thank you. I listened to it actually on a drive home from Vamp. I listened to a, a, the one of the episodes. I felt like it was the perfect setting in the visual and like listening to both of you speak and nice and the messages that you're sharing and the stories that you're sharing. It's very impactful. I think it's what you're putting thank out in the world you. is beautiful and it's so important. Uh, so I thank you for sharing that with with me and everybody else who listens, who I wouldn't you know I wouldn't have that opportunity to learn these stories about Sky Woman or some of the stuff that you share on the podcast, people need to hear these stories and and know what's happening around our world. So go listen to the Auntie's Dandelion. Like there's some amazing women on yes. there and you're going to learn every episode. I learned something and it's so, so great and so wonderful. Oh, yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Goa. Thank you so much. For those listening, are there any places that you think that people want to know more about where they can you know, immerse themselves in Mohawk language if this is something that they want to do to come back to their communities. Um, you've mentioned the schools or other places or other ways that people can find this information, take that step forward into, you know, embracing their community. Yeah, there are some really good, I mean, using, you know, Gunyan Gehaga as an example, I think is really useful for people who even aren't Haudenosaunee, right? Jeremy Green is, uh, he has his PhD. He wrote an article in the Canadian Encyclopedia about the state of our language. So that's a great place to start to get the breakdown. It breaks down how our language is polysynthetic, how it's, you know, knitted together. It breaks down the statistics in our communities. It's a, just a great place to start, really, really engaging. And he also wrote a report for Six Nations Polytechnic, which is on, on territory where I'm from, and the Ontario Trillium Foundation. There was a report called Pathways to Creating Speakers of Ungwe Hunwe Neha at Six Nations. So that's to creating speakers of our original language at Six Nations. So that's a report that came out in 2017. A friend of mine, Lou White, Llewellyn White, wrote a book called Free to be Mohawk, Indigenous Education at the Akwazasne Freedom School. And that freedom school is an immersion school that starts when they're quite young. It's been dynamic. It's been going on for a long time. They have like fundraisers every year. She does also a lot of work around residential, especially Carlisle Residential School. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so Lou Allen White, uh, she's an academic that was written in 2016. And then one that I haven't, I'm not familiar with this guy named Michael Hoover, but there's something called the revival of the Mohawk language in Gahnawage from McGill University. So I'm going to go look at that one. <laughs> <laughs> so those are resources that I think looking at the way la- language revitalization is happening in the Mohawk community, especially with this root method. We have a lot of people come to our school from other territories, even if they're not speaking an Iroquoian language, are the way that we teach or the way that, you know, this these courses go are really useful. So so I think that these resources are will be useful to people who want to understand like how do you start to intersect with your language? Where do you begin? How do you start even assessing where the language is? How do you start to find the resources? You know, and it's different in every community. I just feel, again, really lucky to be part of a community. I feel like we're so rich and surging forward. And it's just so many young people and young mothers, Mm. right, are coming to our language school. And it's because of their young children and how they want that life tied to language. Yes for their children. It's a beautiful thing. And honestly, what guanawarado to these young women, I love them so much that they have these children, they have all these obstacles, you know, they don't have a lot of monetary resources. They do often have the resources of our communities, uh, but it's still a massive struggle. And what they do is show up every single day and learn Mohawk, learn Ganyageha. So that's amazing. Love it. Well, thank you for taking the time to share all these wonderful stories with us. I feel more connected to the land right now, just like, you know, thinking (laughs) about things differently. And I appreciate it. I really appreciate it. So thank you. Oh, thank you. You guys are a a joy. Thank (laughs) you you for Yeah. Oh, you're a joy. No, no, you are. <laughs> oh, you're a joy. Use it. Stop it. Use it. Use it. I mean, you do. Yeah, I love it. I love it. Oh, she's such a joy to speak with. I love hearing her Mohawk language and all the stories. And oh. it's so much more expansive than just a conversation. Not even just like language is so, so much a part of us in all facets of our being, the way we communicate with the world, the way we connect with other people. I just felt like it was such a bigger thing. And then touching upon those ideas of, again, what am I representing? Who am I telling the story to? Who's the story for? How am I using my voice? To me, that was really resonated with me throughout this whole thing. Yeah. Because it applies to everyone. That journey she took from what you know, we would typically think in the media industry, like, oh, you're working for National Geographic. Oh, working, you know, you have these big names that people drop and that she was in that world and realized, like, this does not align with my values at all or who I am as a human. And, and it's interesting because there's things times when you're like, well, what if you stay in it and you can make the change? But mm-hmm. there is a challenge there that you're always going to face of like, there will be a compromise, but what gets compromised yeah. and what partners really understand. And yeah, yeah. Go listen to the Auntie's Dandelion. They're amazing. <laughs> so fun. It's just so great to hear our perspective and stories that I don't get to hear in my day-to-day life. And so now I do. Should we say about some awesome things? Yeah. What do you got? So uh, I am excited. I'm going to be going to TIFF this week. So that's for those who don't know what TIFF is. It's Toronto International Film Festival. A lot of amazing films from around the world premiere here and a lot of great Canadian films. I'm really excited about. There's tons of 
amazing content that's going to be coming out um, at the festival. They are also doing a TV component and a film component. And on the TV side, I'm really excited. And the name is totally escaped me. It's um, the Tegan and Sarah story. Oh, yes. And they're doing a series. So I'm really excited to see that. Two of the films I really want to shout out is Kelly Fife Marshall, her debut feature film, When Morning Comes. She's an amazing creator. And I really want to continue to support and see her work. Another friend of mine, Joseph Ameta, is an amazing filmmaker. He did a short film called Flood, and he has a new film out. It had different names, but now the name is Pussy, and I just <laughs> so excited. I'm gonna because I'm covering Tiff for Press. Um, I'm going to totally uh, interview him just to put that in the title of my uh, talk about Pussy <laughs> all day long. Yeah, but it's really amazing because it's a film about queer awakening about him as a child and just the care that he's taken for this film and the people in it is just astounding. He's just so, so clear of his vision, but also of his protection of his community and making something for his community. It's not for anyone else. It's for his community. And I just think that's absolutely beautiful. I got to be an extra last year and I was really excited. I got to go like dance in a basement to no music. Awesome. It was really special for me to be able to be part of something that he'd worked on for so long. And there is press. I'm there as part of the media inclusion group for, again, writers with disability. I'm also going to be part of Canada content. It's essentially a market. And I'm going to be there as a delegate with the disability screen office. So sweet. a lot of stuff happening where I'm going to be talking a lot more about myself in a different capacity. You've opened up the gate and, and there's people waiting for you. They want to hear what you have to say. So that's great. It is a little scary because um, especially when it's something to do with how your brain works and you think about how people, you fear that people will look at you differently, but those aren't the right people for you then. But even just looking at what we've done so far with this podcast and the feedback we get from people about each topic we do, and there's always somebody that's like, wow, this is like helped me. So hearing different stories, it mm -hmm. helps. And I know it's helped me in the past. Yes. Just feel not alone and not like the complete weirdo and just like there's other people that mm -hmm. go through the same things as us. Yeah. And it's funny because it's the, my mantra for like my work, but I, I felt like, you know, this is the thing that I always was hard for me. Disclosure was thinking about how a neurodevelopmental disability or being called, you know, or taking the label of neurodivergent. There is this misconception that, that impacts your intelligence and I was afraid that like, oh, but I'm really smart. And now you're not going to think I'm smart. And it has nothing to do. They are not connected in any way. There's so much ableism, internalized ableism that I was facing and putting on myself. But also there's going to be a continued education for the people who are working with me and with me. And I'm trying to figure out like, how, what do I need and how do I ask for it? And I think by actually being upfront about this is who I am. This is how my brain works. This is what I need. It almost becomes easier to ask for in some capacity, but in some other ways, there's still going to be stigmas. So yeah, it's still hard. Even as your sister, I know certain things differently now because you've shared more with me and let's just make it easier. Mm -hmm. And it's a simple thing, right? You know, the day we took, oh, I'm going to cry now. Mm. The day we took photos for brains, mm -hmm. music was playing and the act of you asking me, is this music distracting to you? Do you want something else? Or do you want silence? Aww. I realize that not many people ask me, what do you need? And it seems like such a small thing, but it actually has 
great impact on me. But I realize that since I've been open, like with my family, with others, I'm being asked, is this okay for you? Yeah. Or when for the disability screen office, I got asked by the person organizing, do you have any requirements? And I'm mm-hmm. like, no, I'm okay. And he's like, oh, there's going to be a quiet room. I was like, oh my God, that's so great. I'm so excited. And I was like, oh, that's the requirement. That's the thing I need. I need space where it's quiet sometimes. I feel like you're probably learning what you actually need, right? Yeah. And when you go through the world also telling yourself that you're just trying to constantly fit in, the masking is really real and like not even being able to identify. Like when I first started working my therapist, I realized I didn't even know how to understand when I needed to eat or what sleeping meant. Like I just didn't know. Do you have a quick one before we wrap up? Sorry, I took a lot of time there. (laughs) I watched Run Woman Run and it was a wonderful film. We talked about it in this episode. I was recognizing some of the Mohawk. It was nice to hear the language again. And the story and taking care of your body, being healthy. And so I was kind of inspired by like her journey of running. And I'm like, I need to, I need to move my body, you know, for me so I can live long and be healthy and be happy. And so it just kind of gave me a push. I've been kind of feeling stagnant in my like workout routine. (laughs) So (laughs) watching this film made me feel like, no, it doesn't have to be wild, intense workouts. It can just be going for walks again. So I went for a walk right before we recorded and awesome. I'm just moving my body. And it's, it's partly thanks to run, watching Run Woman Run. Mm-hmm. Moving my body helps my brain. One of the biggest benefits. Anyway. I need to do it too. Anyways, we should wrap this up. Thank you so much for joining us today on Brains. Brains is hosted and produced by Heather and Sarah Taylor, mixed and mastered by Tony Bao. And our theme music is by our little brother, Depish. Graphics were created by Perpetual Motion. If you like what you hear, please rate and review us and tell all your friends to tune in. We'll be watching. <laughs> you can reach us on Instagram or Twitter at Brains Podcast, spelled B-R-A-I-N-S Podcast. You can also go to our website, BrainsPodcast.com, where you can contact us, subscribe, and find out a little more about who we are and what we do. Until next time, I am your host, Heather. And I'm your host, Sarah. Bye! Bye.